Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So I think that that sort of relentless um, hunger for efficiency and maximizing wins above all else has sort of crowded out other important priorities for baseball teams to think about, like treating their players humanely, um, like um, building an entertaining product for fans. And so that, that I think, is a sort of problematic undercurrent of a lot of the early baseball prospectus um, stuff. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to independent journalist Rob Arthur, who has written for 538.com and The Ringer about why there have been so many home runs, not just this season, but over the last decade in Major League Baseball. The theories abound, and Rob Arthur is known as the person who cracked the code. Also, I've got some choice words about Brandon Taubman and the Houston Astros. Got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. I also have a letter that I want to read from a listener and more. But first, let's talk to Rob Arthur. Before I ask you anything about uh, the baseballs and... Uh, their quality or lack thereof. I just wanted to ask you, um, have you always been a, a baseball fan? No, I have not. Um, I was originally a PhD student in evolutionary genetics, and I finished my PhD, and around the same time, I got an offer to work at 538, um, Nate Silver's uh, data journalism site, writing about baseball, based essentially on some blogging I had done. And so I switched careers and uh, went into baseball writing, and uh, as well as writing about some other stuff, um, typically using some of the data skills I gained during my PhD to do that. So, so growing up, uh, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, a um, small town in the Shenandoah Valley, um, and then went to school nearby in, at the University of Virginia, and then moved out to Chicago for grad school. Yeah, and all that time, like, not feeling the game of baseball. Like, this was nothing you... That you devoted your leisure time towards. 
Oh, no, I definitely was, was very into it as a kid. Um, my dad is from Chicago, and we would watch um, both both teams' games on TV um, back when the Cubs were on WGN. And um, it was something I, I really enjoyed as a kid, and I remember the 1998 um, summer of the home run chase between Sosa and McGuire, and I remember the 2005 World Series with the White Sox. My dad was overjoyed. Um, so there were, there were definitely some high points in that time. Um, then I sort of fell out of love with the game around the time of college and then picked it back up in grad school. Got it. And so um, at that point, I had sort of a different view on it because I had a lot of math and stats knowledge. So it was sort of a, a through line in my life that, you know, disappeared and then reappeared. Got it. Are, are you um, a fan of today's game? Like a, a lot of even like longtime baseball writers who are in love with the sport um, have expressed that they don't actually enjoy it as much as they used to because of the emphasis on uh, home runs and strikeouts and the minimization of uh, putting the ball in play and the way it's kind of like this all-or-nothing process. Uh, d- d- are you a fan of how the game currently operates? So I would say I'm not truly a fan, um, not so much because of the style of the game, but because of just the time I've spent um, uh, working within the game. Um, I've also been a consultant and I'm currently a consultant for a major league team. So I know a lot of people on a lot of different teams um, in their front offices. And I know it, it's hard to like root for, you know, one person to succeed when you know it means another person will fail. So that's part of it. And then part of it is just sort of knowing more about the business side of the game. And um, it is, it is a business, right? And it's very cutthroat. Um, and so it makes it hard to, to get excited about, um, rooting for the laundry, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's more, that's what it's more about for me. In terms of the style of the game, I I find that the, the biggest issue for me in enjoying it is just the pace of play, um, which is another thing that has come up a lot. And I know that Rob Manfred, the commissioner, has been concerned about. Um, it's just the, the massive amount of time that players spend uh, kind of adjusting their batting gloves or um, walking around the mound or sitting or kicking the dirt. All these little things uh, kind of add up. It's now several seconds more per pitch than it used to be. And it's something that I can still enjoy it. It's just something I have to have on in the background instead of it being my primary focus. Because I find if I if I focus exclusively on it, then I'm constantly being irritated by having to wait four seconds for the pitch to start. And it seems like they were ready to go before that. Uh, can you tell us what kind of consulting work that you do for Major League Baseball for a particular team? Uh, no, unfortunately, I'm under a non-disclosure agreement, so I can I can tell you it's uh, statistical, which you might have guessed already. But um, uh, I can't I can't say mm-hmm. anything more than that, and I can't tell you which team it is, unfortunately. Okay, but 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 it's it, it's basically connected to some of your writing, like like a statistical analysis. Um, uh, um, yeah. Okay, got you, got you. Now, um, I, I really wanted to talk to you because of um, for, for some, some advice by uh, Lindsay Adler, uh, The Athletic, to look at your Twitter feed and then reading some of your articles. And uh, it helped me understand um, a lot of what's happening in today's game because I struggle to understand it. And for a lot of folks, like when I listen to mainstream sports media, they speak of the recent flurry of home runs year after year, the record-setting pace of home runs as this kind of um, unsolved mystery. Now, you feel like this mystery is solved. Uh, yep. but, and can, can, you, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so home runs really started increasing um, in the 
second half after the All-Star break in 2015. And the increase that year from the first half to the second half was one of the biggest in all the years of history of Major League Baseball. So that started to attract my attention. And I worked with another guy, Ben Lindbergh, who writes for The Ringer now, um, who has been uh, at, uh, well, he's also still at The Ringer, um, just when I was at ESPN. But um, we were we were working together to figure out what happened. And we tried to eliminate, or we succeeded in eliminating a lot of factors in that search. And it sort of all uh, went back to the ball. But we didn't have enough evidence to say definitively it was the ball. So in 2016, the home runs went up, again, quite substantially. And then in 2017, the home run rate uh, spiked again, except this time it finally increased to a level where it basically blew the previous home run rate uh, record out of the water. So um, that was the first time I think people really started to notice what had been going on for the past couple of years. In that same year, Ben did some good research that seemed to point toward there being an aerodynamic contribution of the ball. So essentially, if the baseball is more aerodynamic, then when it's hit with a certain exit velocity, when it comes off the bat with a certain velocity, it's going to travel further. And I uh, talked to some some uh, physicists about this, and I came up with a way to measure the actual um, drag coefficient, essentially how aerodynamic the ball is, um, on every pitch that's thrown in Major League Baseball um, in a season. So um, non-baseball fans may not know, but there's this tracking system that uh, measures the speed of the ball when it leaves the pitcher's hand and then when it crosses home plate. Um, and so you can use that essentially to uh, reverse engineer how much the ball itself is slowing down as it goes through the air. And that's a measure of how aerodynamic it is. And what I found, looking back to the previous decade or so of data, was that the baseball had become much more aerodynamic in the last two years. And that was really what was to blame for most of the increase in home runs. So... Um, it was it was a pretty striking, I, I would say, not quite definitive, but uh, very strong evidence that um, the ball itself was to blame. And it sort of overcame a lot of issues that we've had until then. For one, um, you can't know that the balls that you're testing are representative of the ones that are used in Major League Baseball. But in this case, the way that I had measured it, I was actually measuring it on every pitch that was thrown. So I knew that it was representative of the, of the, base, the same baseballs that were in use because it was measuring those same baseballs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, like I said, I think it was a, it was a pretty uh, strong piece of evidence that the baseball was to blame. So the commissioner convened this committee of physicists and scientists and statisticians to essentially study this issue. Um, fast forward a year uh, into 2018, and they released their report. Um, and their report, which was a much more significant and thorough piece of analysis than my um, writing had been, uh, essentially confirmed what I had found, uh, at least in regards to the aerodynamic drag on the baseball. But that was the main reason that home runs had been giving had been going up. Um, so, um, so that was sort of where it like uh, became obvious uh, to me and a lot of other baseball fans. I think it was miscovered some in the in the media about what that report actually said. But um, if you if you were reading it carefully, uh, it was very clear that. They had come to a definitive conclusion with access to a lot more data and a lot much much more um, rigorous scientific experiments than I had done. So are we so, talking about uh, the, that was where. So you're talking ahead. about there's a change in like in the stitching of the ball, in the internal materials of the ball. That these are the changes you were looking at. So it's tough to tell. You can measure the aerodynamics of the baseball, but you can't actually say what the change in aerodynamics is coming from there are a lot of different things that impact the aerodynamics of the baseball. So the most obvious one is the height of the seams, right? So the baseball has these 
seams and they stick out above the surface. And if they're higher, then the baseball has more drag because they're sort of catching the air and slowing the baseball down. And so a lot of previous variation, um, including in the NCAA, was due to seam height varying. Um, they didn't find that the seam heights were significantly different. Um, there are other things that it could be, like the surface roughness of the ball is going to influence how much it catches the air. Um, even something internal can influence the aerodynamics of the ball. For example, how close to the center the pill, which is the center of mass of the ball is, will determine whether it sort of wobbles or not as it flies. And if it wobbles more, then it's going to um, naturally catch more air and, and it's going to slow down more. So um, there's so many different factors that it could be. And to now, at least publicly, the, the committee has not announced what the actual uh, combination of things is that is leading the baseball's drag to change. But they were fairly certain that it was the baseball's drag that was doing all, that was creating so much change in home run rates. Now, now, most people would look at this story and think, why is Mom Rob Manfred uh, convening a committee? Wouldn't he be in charge of this, like almost a conspiratorial perspective? Uh, have you come across that, like this idea that you know, this idea of Major League Baseball wants more home runs, therefore they order the construction of the balls to be constructed in a different way? Uh, why, why does that idea strain credulity? Yeah, that's a, that idea is definitely out there, and depending on who you ask, they'll provide various sources of evidence for that. The reason it strains credulity is that if you actually look at how the aerodynamic drag on the baseball has changed over the years, and we have data back to 2009, you can see that it kind of tends to just wander up and down, up and down, up and down. And it's uh, inconsistent. Um, and furthermore, there's no there's no discernible pattern. Like it's not like it goes up at certain times of the year and down at others or that it's been gradually trending up. It's just sort of all over the place. So, for example, after the high home run year of 2017, when we shattered all those records, um, drag then proceeded to go up the next year in 2018. So it's hard to believe that Manfred said, well, I want all these homers, I want 2017 to be record-breaking, and then the next year he turned around and said, ah, never mind, um, well, let's go back to a, a less aerodynamic ball. We will decrease the home run rate. And then in 2019, we got an even more aerodynamic ball. So if he is uh, running, if he's de determining this, he's, he's at minimum extremely inconsistent. And even apparently from month to month or week to week, the ball seems to vary over those time spans. And it sort of just goes up and down, up and down at random. It's much more consistent, I think, with them not having any control over how the ball is manufactured, which I don't think is any less damning for Major League Baseball because the baseball itself is, you know, integral and central to the sport. But um, they don't seem to be able to um, determine the drag on it. They don't seem to be able to uh, to control that at all. So the fact that it's moving up and down at random, I think, is evidence against uh, any kind of brain conspiracy but it is also evidence that they have no manufacturing quality control and they're not able to determine how aerodynamic the baseball is. But if this is just about an absence of manufacturing uh, quality control, wouldn't we see similar variances and similar spikes in the 70s and 80s and 90s? Uh, why has this uh, so concentrated itself in recent years? Yeah, now that's a big mystery. And that's something I don't know the answer to. I think that um, MLB has recently kind of been arguing that that's the case, that there have been previous um, spikes and decreases over the last, you know, 40 years or whatever, and we, ha we, don't, we didn't know that they were the ball because we didn't have this data on hand. Um, that may be true, but the, the recent changes are much more severe than at any other time in Major League Baseball history. 
So clearly something has, if it is not a conspiracy, then clearly something has kind of gone haywire at the factory and is leading to a lot more variation than there normally is. Hmm. Now, one, one of the issues that to me seems logical, but I'm, I'm, I'm really open to it being debunked about like what's a main difference in recent years uh, is, is the question of, of climate change. And, you know, there's some articles online about increased humidity in the air and those chemicals weighing less than what they're replacing. And that could be a cause of um, higher uh, aerodynamic uh, potential of the baseball because of climate change. Now, do, do you reject those ideas? Yeah, so climate is something that we can actually factor out. So temperature is the main contributor to how far, or one of the main contributors, I should say, to how far a baseball flies. And we have temperature measurements for each game in the last few years. And um, they are a bit higher. So global warming is, in fact, having an effect on baseball. But it's not, uh, it's not a major effect. It would, I think it's something like a 1% increase in home runs can be attributed to the temperature. Wow. It's, it's still a very slow process, right? So humidity um, is something that we don't have data on. It is likely increasing slightly, which would make the ball travel further. But it is also a much smaller um, factor for determining how far the baseball flies than temperature is. And so even if it was increasing pretty rapidly, it wouldn't be enough to explain the large, I think it's something like 40 or 50 percent over the last few years, increase in home runs. So um, that might be a small factor, but it would be even less than than temperature. Hmm. And then the other question, which we haven't talked about, is like, well, what what about steroids? I mean, what what about could the game still be juiced? I mean, have has perhaps the research and development that's gone into creating uh, as synthetic testosterone has that perhaps advanced to the point where it's not as visible as it was on Maguire and Sosa's body and uh, and the masking agents are so much better so players aren't being caught. Uh, could that be one of the things that we're looking at? Yeah, so you can never fully rule it out. Um, it's possible that if there are new drugs that nobody knows about, they might be having a different impact than they had before. But I can say it would have to be the case that nearly every player in baseball was using them to the same extent and getting the same benefit out of them because that's what we see for the home run uh, increases and decreases that we've seen over the last few years. It's remarkably even across the entire pool of players. Mm-hmm. It's not like some guys are seeing their home run total spike to 60 or 70 the way they were during that steroid era. What we're seeing is essentially everyone adds a flat 5 or 10 home runs to their uh, total when, when the ball changes. So, uh, you know, it's, it's possible. You can never fully say, like, maybe there's, maybe, maybe there's some magical drug that swept through the league and everyone has used it. But it seems to be really counter to the, the constant nature of the increase and the, the way that it's been timed perfectly to how the drag has changed. So, uh, essentially, whenever the drag changes, you see these massive changes in the home run rate. But it would be really, like, like we talked about before with the conspiracies, it would really strain credulity to believe that everyone was, you know, taking a dose at one point, then they all stopped, then they all started again, then they all stopped again, that kind of thing. Well, and, and then the, the, the other point that uh, would be a devil's advocate point against the drag theory that I'd want to ask you is, you know, you, you talk to players and they talk about being coached differently, like, you know, the money ball effect, like don't care if you strike out, it's just one out, a double play is worse, swing for the fence is more, uh, increase in strikeouts, you know, you could call it the Bryce Harper effect, uh, and, and just swing for those fences because that's uh, the best possible statistical use of your time at the plate. I mean, c- could that be a factor? 
Yeah, um, I think that is a major factor in the last year. Um, in 2019, the home run records were broken all over again. And I think part of it was that players had sort of caught up to the fact that the ball was more aerodynamic and so mm. they were um, sort of swinging upwards more, which is a big element in coaching now. People talk about the launch angle revolution, which essentially means hitting more fly balls because fly balls are a lot more likely to get over the fence. So that is part of it, I think. That's a that's a major um, factor that's, that's driving an increase in home runs. But um, it took a few years for that to catch on. And we know that because we can actually see the uh, the average exit velocity that the ball is coming off the bat with and then the average angle that it's coming off the bat with. And that didn't really start to move a lot until this year. So before that, it doesn't seem like uh, hitters were benefiting a lot from coaching because they weren't hitting it any harder and they weren't um, getting a ton more fly balls. Um, this year, that does seem to have changed, and there does seem to be a big contribution from um, the player behavior. But um, there's still also, I think, another contribution, even in 2019, uh, from the baseball zone. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating stuff here. And so this, this, is, this is terrific, Rob. Thank you so much. Um, how can people keep up with your research? Yeah, so uh, I would recommend following me on Twitter. I'm at no underscore little underscore plans. Um, you can read a lot of it comes out at Baseball Prospectus. Um, and, uh, yeah, I write occasionally for a few other places like Slate and Vice News um, and uh, The Intercept. So, yeah, any of those places. And one last thing is um, I saw that you tweeted about a gentleman by the name of Chaim Bloom and yep. uh, his recent uh, job prospects. Um, can you speak a little bit about who Chaim Bloom is and why it's a big deal, is his recent uh, hiring? Yeah, so... Baseball Prospectus is this little site that was started, I think, around 1998, 1999. It was for essentially sabermetrics nerds, people that were really into analytics and baseball back in the day. And um, it's always been kind of a, a niche site, but it's where a lot of analytics people in baseball have gathered over the years and have sort of launched their careers. Nate Silver is one of them. He started at Baseball Prospectus and was the editor-in-chief for a while before he went on to bigger and better things at 538. Um, Chaim Bloom is another one of them. He was an intern and a writer at Baseball Prospectus for, I think, a year or two um, before he went on to get a job in the Tampa Bay Rays front office. And he's sort of steadily um, gone up, moved up through the ranks in that time. And recently he got a job as uh, essentially the general manager at the Boston Red Sox. And this is the first time that any Baseball Prospectus alum, alumnus or alumni has, uh, has gotten a job as a general manager. Now, there are a ton of people from Baseball Prospectus scattered all throughout baseball. A lot of them are powering, for example, the Astros run, um, but uh, they've never, you know, one of them has never gotten all the way to the point of being a general manager. And so it's sort of a watershed moment that uh, the kind of uh, new school of baseball analysis that Baseball Prospectus inaugurated, you know, two decades ago has finally risen to the point of literally getting hold of one of the major league baseball teams. And so it's, it's, it's a pretty cool change um, in some ways, of course, uh, there are ways that baseball perspective has uh, maybe been, uh, or the style of analysis they pioneered has been problematic throughout the years as well. But it does sort of speak to the fact that analytics has really finally uh, taken over baseball to, a, to an even larger extent than it had before. Hmm. If someone asked you what's the most problematic thing about analytics and its effect on baseball, what would you say? I think that uh, a big problem with it is that in the early days of baseball perspective, it was all about how do you extract maximum value or efficiency out of out of your roster, and how do you turn that into the maximum number of wins? 
And I'm not sure that that is necessarily going to lead to a really entertaining style of baseball being played or an entertaining version of the league. I've written about this in the past with tanking and how I think one of the things that came out of those early days of research is that tanking can be a valuable way to build your team. The problem with tanking, of course, is that it results in your team having no chance of success for two, three, four seasons in a row. And that tends to turn off a lot of fans. And what we've seen and what the data bears out is that that reduces attendance in baseball. Um, because why would you go to see a team that is essentially like winning 40% of their games and has no chance against good teams? So I think that that sort of relentless um, hunger for efficiency and maximizing wins above all else has sort of crowded out other important priorities for baseball teams to think about, like treating their players humanely, um, like um, building an entertaining product for fans. And so that, that I think, is a sort of problematic undercurrent of a lot of the early baseball prospectus um, stuff. Hmm. Wow. Uh, hey, Rob Arthur, thank you so much for your time here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. That's terrific. Uh, that was Rob Arthur, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from The Nation magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much to Rob Arthur. Now I've got some choice words about what's going on with the Houston Astros and what it says about the solidarity that can be shown between ink-stained wretches in the locker room. Okay, look, this past week we learned that being the assistant general manager of a Major League Baseball team comes with more responsibility than being a Supreme Court judge or president of the United States. Houston Astros assistant GM Brandon Taubman, after several days of twisting in the wind, was fired unceremoniously with his team right smack in the middle of the World Series. For those that missed part one of this tale of a pampered child executive actually receiving comeuppance for his Delta House behavior, Taubman had shouted a profanity-laden defense of a player on his team, reliever Roberto Osuna, who they signed after Osuna had been suspended for 75 games in 2018 for violating the league's policies on domestic violence. Taubman had screamed his support of Osuna amidst a champagne-soaked clubhouse celebration following the Astros' playoff triumph over the New York Yankees. It wasn't just what he said. Taubman, according to the account by Sports Illustrated's Stephanie Epstein and corroborated by numerous people on the scene, faced three female reporters, one wearing a purple domestic violence awareness bracelet, and shouted six times, Thank God we got Asuna! I'm so fucking glad we got Asuna! As bad or worse than Taubman's actions was the way it was subsequently handled or mishandled by the Astros organization. Truth be told, Taubman is being fired less for the sin of what he did than for the ham-faced, blinkered idiocy with which the Astros followed up his actions. They started first by denying that it had taken place, slandering Abstein's reporting. 
Then, as more corroboration came out, they had Taubman issue the classic non-apology apology, where he spoke about his family and the pain of having his marvelous character being misconstrued. Finally, after nearly a week of this, and after Houston manager A.J. Hinch rebuked Taubman in a manner far beyond the mealy-mouthed corporate boilerplate issued by the team, Taubman was fired. As stated, there is no way he loses his job if the Astros had just issued a sincere apology at the beginning. Perhaps there's also no way he loses his job if Houston hadn't lost the first two games of the World Series at home to the Washington Nationals, making the team look like they were careening out of control on and off the field. But the problem with thinking that this story ends with the sacking of Taubman is that it ignores the greater rot that surrounded the aftermath of the incident. In the press conference announcing his dismissal, Astros GM Jeff Luno neither took nor issued any accountability for the initial ugly press release that called Epstein's reporting a lie, only saying awkwardly that putting the statement together was a group effort. This could well be interpreted as him saying that he played a role in crafting that initial statement, but he was too mealy-mouthed to admit it. Luno also said during the presser that he hadn't had time to call Stephanie Epstein and discuss what happened or heaven forfend apologize. Meanwhile, Epstein was sitting right there in the room. As Lisa Olson, the legendary sports writer who endured a high-profile sexual harassment ordeal covering the New England Patriots 29 years ago, tweeted, Any GM serious about taking accountability, nay, any decent contrite human, would have stood up, looked Steph Epstein in the eye, and apologized in front of the cameras. He has no idea what she and the other women have endured this week, all for doing their jobs. Later in the press conference, Luno described Taubman's rant as devastating, but then followed that up by saying, I wouldn't wish it to happen to anyone in this room, just like I wouldn't wish it on anyone to have to sit up here and answer these questions either. In other words, this was a clown show of executives who are caught acting like themselves. If there was something heartening about this entire story, it's that justice was only served because all the baseball writers, from the clubhouse folks present to the National Columnists to the Baseball Writers Association of America, all had Stephanie Epstein's back and supported both her account as well as the rights of journalists to do their jobs without having to put up with this bullshit. It actually felt old school, with the writers showing some old-fashioned solidarity and demonstrating that the old Mark Twain maxim still holds. Never pick a fight with people who buy ink by the barrel. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show that we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. I got two Just Stand Up awards this week. Stand up! The first goes to the activists who before NBA opening night at the Staples Center between the LA Clippers, my preseason pick to win the NBA championship, and the Los Angeles Lakers, 
handed out 13,000 t-shirts saying stand with Hong Kong, which was in great violation of the dictates of the league that are trying to not have fans express political views in the stands, and also obviously as a direct response to the NBA's uh, tortured kerfuffle with China during the offseason. The other Just Stand Up award connected with this goes to Charles Barkley, who told Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, to shut his hypocritical pie hole up. Uh, His exact words were, shut the hell up. Now, why did Charles Barkley correctly tell Mike Pence to shut the hell up? Uh, It's because Mike Pence, who is the winner of this week's Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sit your ass down! made this incredibly sanctimonious speech where he said, in siding with the Chinese Communist Party and silencing free speech, the NBA is acting like a wholly owned subsidiary of the authoritarian regime. He also said, some of the NBA's biggest players and owners who routinely exercise their freedom to criticize this country lose their voices when it comes to the freedom and rights of the people in China. So Mike Pence is a racist hypocrite. Uh, What he's doing here is he's blasting NBA players for not using their platform to protest China, when last year he was blasting NFL players for using their platform to protest police violence, if you remember that. Remember when he walked out of the game in Indianapolis because a player dared kneel on the field and it was all set up for him to wait for the player to kneel and then walk out at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer money. Lovely. So Mike Pence is a Christianist white supremacist. His hypocrisies are rooted in his hatreds. And beyond just the hypocrisy of him saying football players can't protest, basketball players should protest, There's also the fact that uh, Mike Pence and Donald Trump have a thing for criticizing majority black sports leagues like the NFL and the NBA. That's really what binds all of this together. This is about payback against the NBA because it's not like the United States doesn't do business with China. Give me a break. As if Mike Pence or Donald Trump, Donald Trump of all people, who has also done nothing to support the protesters in Hong Kong, and even, according to the Washington Post, may have tried to cut a deal uh, with the government there in exchange for not supporting the protesters if they could also dig up more dirt on his political opponents because he's a mobster scumbag president. But this is the sort of uh, frickin' frack operation that Trump and Pence have figured out, that one of them is the wannabe Tony Soprano and the other one is the wannabe Jimmy Swagger. And uh, hand-in-hand, arm-in-arm, they run roughshod over any sense of decency uh, whatsoever. But they're united in their racism, so they got that going for each other. So Mike Pence, I know this won't have as much impact as Charles Barkley, but shut the hell up and sit your ass down. Before we go this week, I got a really interesting email uh, from a listener named Gary Fitzgerald about our discussion last week about LeBron in Hong Kong that I had with uh, Michael Lee, uh, the national basketball writer for The Athletic. And this is what uh, Gary Fitzgerald wrote. I just want to read what he wrote, and people can uh, mull it around your heads, and I'll give some brief thoughts about it as well. But I think this is thought-provoking. Gary Fitzgerald wrote to me, After listening to your latest podcast, I want to add my two cents. The problem with the Hong Kong protest is that it's not clear what the protesters want is something the people around the world who struggle with against neoliberalism can support. 
As far as I can tell, the protesters are angry at the threats to their political freedom from China. They are equally angry at the economic inequality in Hong Kong. Normally, these two issues combine to form a coherent call for the establishment of democratic socialism. But in Hong Kong, socialism is equated with China and its repressive government. They can't come out against capitalism because that leads to absorption by China and the loss of their political freedom. They can't come out in favor of capitalism because support for the protests will collapse. That's quite the sticky wicket there that Gary describes. He writes more. The protesters have already won the political part of their fight. The proposed extradition law is dead. Now they are struggling to do something about the economic problem. Unfortunately, they have no leverage. They can't call for socialism because technically their government is already socialist, given its close relationship with China and their influence over the political scene in Hong Kong. They can't call for more capitalism because that would make their living conditions worse. So they act out by protesting and disrupting business as usual. The leaders in China know how dangerous this is to them because these actions could easily lead to a mass rebellion, possibly resulting in the overthrow of the Chinese government. This situation is a complicated mess. The fact that LeBron stepped into it willingly indicates that he has had no idea what he was getting himself into. By the way, LeBron needs to be reminded that in order for Muhammad Ali to become the icon he is today, he had to lose everything. I agree with you in your guess that he should have stayed out of the controversy. That's not really what, what we said, but let me keep going with Gary's words here. If he wanted to make an informed statement about Hong Kong, he could have noted the fear that the Hong Kong people have of losing their political freedoms as Hong Kong becomes more integrated into Chinese society and the dissatisfaction the Hong Kong people have with the capitalist status quo. He could have suggested the Hong Kong protesters adopt the U.S. labor movement model of demanding improved material conditions without calling for the abolition of capitalism. This would signal to Beijing that if they pressured the Hong Kong government to improve the living standards of the Hong Kong people, they could resolve this situation without risking their control. Thank you for allowing me to say my piece. Sincerely, Gary Fitzgerald. Thank you so much, Gary, for that. I appreciate anybody who listens to the podcast that thoughtfully. Um, I think with the people in Hong Kong, uh, you, you touch on some important points. Um, they find themselves in a not dissimilar position as workers over the years have faced, certainly during the Cold War, when they had strikes and resistance against so-called communist and socialist countries. I mean, today I think China is best described as market Stalinism. I mean, it is a capitalist paradise with no individual freedoms. So in a lot of ways, it's, I mean, that's one of the reasons that it's why it's so attractive to the NBA and other multinational corporations, because you get all the profits and none of the dissent. That's why Nike is there, uh, because it's sweatshop, uh, sweatshop Incorporated. Um, I think what the people in Hong Kong are doing, though, shouldn't be seen as uh, completely in limbo between these two poles of do we call for more capitalism, do we call for socialism, because first thing is that they, as you mentioned, they are fighting against income inequality. And right now, as I'm doing this uh, podcast, there are like millions of people in the streets of Chile, um, in Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, uh, Lebanon. And a lot of these protesters have taken inspiration from Hong Kong. And they're putting out social media videos where they talk about Hong Kong and what they've learned from the Hong Kong struggles. So even if Hong Kong is in a bit of political limbo in terms of the clarity of what they're fighting for, 
Uh, they are inspiring people in other countries. And what's uniting all these protests, as you mentioned, is the fight against neoliberalism, is the fight against uh, the worsening income inequality that exists, uh, not just there, but throughout the world, because it is a global problem. Uh, and it's being expressed in the United States and uh, the popularity and the rallies around Bernie Sanders, even if it hasn't. Uh, and, and it's, but it's also being expressed in the United States in things like the uh, strikes in Chicago uh, the, around the, the teachers, the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, the strikes in General uh, Motors, uh, there's a teacher strike in Dedham, Massachusetts, a place where there's a no-strike clause. So even if it's not expressing itself in mass centralized protests in the United States, you see this taking place um, in a uniform way all over the planet. Um, and in this country as well. Uh, so just that's just some quick words about that. And, and also to be clear, uh, Michael Lee and I weren't against LeBron saying anything about it. We just said that he had 10 days to come up with something to say. And what he came up with was not great. Didn't exactly cloak himself in glory there. Uh, so that, that's all we were really saying about that. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Rob Arthur for being on with us. Thank you so much to everybody listening to this uh, rather uh, unusual sports podcast. Uh, thanks to everybody out there uh, who writes in. You can always reach me, Dave Zirin, at edgesports at gmail.com or over Twitter at edgesports. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.